Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Hello and good afternoon, everyone. This is Suzanne Knabeny, called from Police Science Doctor today with a live interview with Dr. Olivia Johnson. So wherever you're watching this, you'll be able to ask questions, you'll be able to make comments, and I'll hopefully be able to put these to Dr. Johnson for you. And hopefully she'll be able to answer them whilst we are on air. Obviously, if you're watching this back after the event, that's fine. You can still comment on whichever platform you're using. So at the moment, this is being streamed to Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Um, hopefully we'll also later put it out onto Twitter. Um, but for now, let me just read who Dr. Olivia Johnson is and then we'll ask her to come into the studio and we'll speak to her then. So Dr. Olivia Johnson holds a Master's in Criminology and Criminal Justice from the University of Missouri, St. Louis and is a doctorate and a doctorate in organization leadership management from the University of Phoenix School of Advanced Studies. Dr. Johnson is the founder of the Blue Wall Institute, where she trains first responders, first responder families and administrators on wellness issues, suicide awareness and prevention, peer support, stress and anger management and leadership issues. Due to her perseverance in raising awareness of the issues facing our first responders, she was named the Illinois State Representative and Active Board Member for the National Police Suicide Foundation. Dr. Johnson recently announced the inception of the National Law Enforcement Suicide Mortality Database, which will track all law enforcement and correction officers suicides and non-fatal suicide attempts, and we'll be talking about that. Dr. Johnson is a veteran of the United States Air Force, a former police officer and a published author. She belongs to numerous professional organizations and is considered a subject matter expert, expert in police officer health and wellness, police officer suicide and suicide prevention and awareness in first responders. Dr. Johnson was, was an advisory board member for Valor regarding curriculum review for de-escalation training and techniques. She also formerly worked as a senior research associate for the Institute for Intergovernmental Research as a lead instructor for the Valor Officer Safety Program and as a program advisor and lead instructor for SAFLEO, Suicide Awareness for Law Enforcement Officers Program. So that was a very long bio for somebody who's obviously done and achieved a lot in her time and um, we'll be um, inviting her to the studio now. Obviously, we're going to speak about police suicide and related matters and a very warm welcome, Dr. Olivia Johnson. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Suzanne. Okay, so let me just show people what we're going to talk about today. So first of all, could you please let us know, I mean, obviously, I've, I've just read the bio, but perhaps in your own words and maybe some things I haven't mentioned, who are you and why might people know you? Um, probably the biggest reason that people would know me is through one of my trainings. So I've trained thousands of officers, agency administrators, and families um, with my time through the Blue Wall Institute and other organizations that I've worked for. So if you know me, you've probably met me at one of my trainings. Okay, fantastic. Um, can you also let me know how and why you became interested in police suicide because that's a you've got a career in the air force you've got a career in in policing but why specifically that topic well actually it came around by accident um i had initially started looking at issues that were taking the lives of our first responders meaning like vehicle accidents um excessive speed not wearing seat belts right being distracted and as i started researching this topic I kept discovering cases of suicide and I was very concerned. I have to be honest. I was very concerned. I started reaching out to agencies and I told them, listen, I think I need to look into this area. And I was told initially, Hey, that's great. Good luck with your research, but we're not interested. You know, we don't have an issue. 
And that kept happening over and over and over again. And I kept saying, this has got to be a bigger issue. I mean, I'm pulling cases from decades ago. So I would get a call about six months into my research and they would say, hey, Olivia, we hate to reach out, but we just had a suicide. And I finally said, no, we can't do this anymore. It's not, we're not reacting here, right? We need to be proactive in, in this issue. And obviously it's an issue. So when it finally kind of came about to me that this was a bigger issue than what people were telling me and what people were talking about, um, I just dug my heels in even deeper and said, this has to be addressed. And I think at that moment, just like anything else, you know, the, the FBI has the Leoka stats, the law enforcement officers killed and assaulted. And they look at things that are putting our officers either at risk for injury, serious injury, or even death. And we go back and we take that, that whole um, concept and we break it down and we look at what was done, what could be done differently to reduce those, those lives being lost or those people being hurt. And yet no one was addressing this issue. And it was like this dirty little secret and it's now starting to come out, but it's like, it's still here. It's a negative outcome and we need to address it because it is a risk factor for first responders. Okay. Um, I just forgot to mention the beginning for pe anyone who wants to ask a question or make a comment. Well, actually, if you want to ask a question, please put a cue into the comments, but also if you could just introduce yourself in the comments, because it would be good for people to know where you are and perhaps who you are. So obviously I'm, I'm well, not obviously, but I'm in the UK Uh, Dr. Johnson, where, whereabouts are you in the U.S.? I'm in Illinois, in Southern Illinois, near St. Louis. Right. Okay. You know, so this this is always a global thing anyway, what we do on Police Science Doctor. So it would be good to know um, if you, you know, who you are and, and where you're based. And if you can just introduce yourselves in the chat so you know who else is watching. And then if you've got a question, please start it with a cue. Then I'll know that's something that I can read out to Olivia. Um, so you mentioned suicide figures. So tell tell us, please, what is the issue with suicide figures as they are at the moment? And then tell us about the, um, the database that you're starting sure. So um, I've been researching suicide for nearly 15 years now among first responders, in particular law enforcement and corrections. And I think one of the biggest things that I've noticed in the past few years um, are people throwing around a number. And this number is kind of out in, in the air. It doesn't signify that things have been validated, you know, for research purposes. It doesn't talk about who these numbers are and what they signify. It's just a number. And after seeing that for so long, I just said, we have to do more than have a number, right? Because my research has shown that this isn't a new issue. Suicide has been around for decades, especially among first responder populations. It's just now getting the attention. So I decided that instead of um, taking a number and running with it and saying, hey, we have a problem. We need to do something with the data and the information that's left behind on these cases. So I've developed what's called the National Law Enforcement Suicide Mortality Database. And I can put the, the site out here shortly, but it literally is a place for families, agencies, officers, first responders to go and, and let us know that there had been a suicide death. It doesn't matter if it happened um, in the 50s and before. We track currently. Um, right now, we're tracking these kind of cases. And what we do is um, this is a one-of-a-kind database. Like, literally, it has 50 data points. So we're not just looking at basic demographics and telling you that the people at risk are white, male, and middle age um, who work in a first responder you know, population. We're telling you that there are 50 different data points that we're collecting because this isn't an easy answer. And if the answer to this question were easy, we would have it figured out by now. Each case is unique, and that's how each case is treated. Um, a semi-psychological autopsy is done on each case. And what differentiates our database from anything else in, literally in the world 
is we verify and validate every single case that comes through. So we can get somebody saying, listen, I, I heard of this case and I want you to check it out. Um, it was a suicide. And I go, well, before we say it's a suicide, we verify it. We contact medical examiner and coroner's offices. We contact police agencies for police reports. Uh, agency will come out with some kind of a report saying that it was a suicide or the family has given us notification. We still try to verify it in one of those ways before it's included in our site. And then we take this information, right, which is extremely important. And from that and from the three years that we had for our book that we wrote, we took this data and we looked at it. And there were 10 what we call fatal factors that came out of this data that literally I can't say were overly surprising, but there were several things that were surprising in the data. And we as a group, meaning the people that help with this book and other professionals in the field, have taken this data and we're looking at it in a different way. So it's not, we have relationship issues. It's why are we having these issues and how can we be proactive, right? Before we get people into this career field, how can we be proactive in having healthy, happy relationships that don't lead to other negative outcomes like divorce, breakup, pending divorce, um, and other issues that come along with that. Um, so it is a paradigm shift in how we address these 10 fatal factors and get ahead of them before they have negative outcomes for the officer, the family and the agency. I've got a number of questions to that, actually, <laughs> even though I've got my next one written down. Uh, so, I mean, interesting, the, the relationship one is that I don't know if that's one of the things that you found surprising or didn't find surprising. But, you know, police people may think, well, you know, police problems are, you know, probably what's going on in the job and stress and shift work and all the trauma they're exposed to. But actually, relationship problems are probably the number one factor yeah. that feature in that um, in that database. And I think the fact that you've got 50 factors you're looking at for every suicide that you record is amazing because you'll be able to to do some great research with that. But is that going to be limited because you won't, won't you, will you have any data sets to compare to, for example, suicides, suicides that have been coded in the same way that are not law enforcement officers, or will you not be able to do this comparison because you're only, you're only doing it for law enforcement or first responders? Well, we probably wouldn't be able to necessarily do certain type of corresponding, you know, looking at those two groups, but we also don't have all of the cases Number one, we don't have all the cases of suicide among first responders, and we're definitely behind the curve because we're waiting on these records to come back, which can take weeks and even months to get back to verify a death. So we have to be almost at a lag, maybe a, maybe a two-year lag as with the CDC or any other reporting agency where there's a lag in the data just so that everything can filter coming through. And then that's definitely an option. Um, we really want to use this database um, and partner with law enforcement agencies, you know, research or uh, research organizations and then universities and such, because this data, um, it's not just here for me. When we sh when we do this type of research, it's scrubbed. So there's no personally or agency identifying information. But the idea here is there's a lot going on here. And we need to have other people in other fields come in and take a look at this so that we can look at this big picture. You know, this isn't just a job thing. Everybody, um, there's, a, there's a group that wants to throw out that this is a PTSD thing or it's all job related. And that's simply not true. Um, it's a component. But what happens is oftentimes when we're, um, you know, sitting there with the cumulative stress and trauma, which made the list of the fatal 10, we're not addressing these in a timely and appropriate manner, and we're allowing it to fester. And in turn, what we do is we often aren't sleeping right, we're not eating right, we're drinking too much, and all these other issues start happening. And what we want to do with this data and what we want to do with this fatal 10 list is we want to take it and we want to go, listen, how can we 
how can we limit or at least reduce some of the negative outcomes that come from this? And, and, and you hit the nail on the head. Um, our relationship issues are top of the list. And that's for anyone, not just first responders. Right. So that means that something's going on here. We have issues. We have issues like anyone else has issues. And yet we're not taking care of the relationships. We're, we're talking to people as though they're suspects, maybe. Right. We're um, we're not having that open, honest communication and we're not actively listening. We kind of shut down once we get home and we do our own thing to try to self-soothe from the day. And after a while, that starts distancing our relationships and those people in the home. And then we have bigger problems that come out. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, is it not seen sometimes as a bit of a feminine issue to talk about relationships? Well, actually, it's the number one killer of, right. um, when it comes to police suicide. And it's, we are, and, and we talked, Olivia, we talked when, when we, when we spoke last time, we, we completely got off on a tangent and we, we just, right. this, this topic is so incredibly fascinating because we are so incompetent as a species at relationships because we don't understand them. We go into the next one and make the same mistakes without analyzing what happened in the last one. We don't really work on ourselves. We don't know that we should work on ourselves. We don't know how to deal with the next person. And there's there's no institution and no school of thought for educating people about it. They're educating you know, younger people now about healthy relationships so they can spot abuse sooner and that's good. But you know, we, even as adults, we still have problems and we don't know how to solve them. And um It is, it is an issue that encroaches on every area of our life, including our families and children, very much so, actually. So um, we'll, we'll get to the fatal 10 as well, but you've ha you have mentioned them, and I'll actually try and put them into the comments so people can read them as we talk about them. Um, what was the issue with um, suicide data before this database? Because were they sometimes overreported, underreported, and what were the reasons for that? So, um, well, there was the reporting for some organizations that do this. It was literally scanning the media, you know, social media or having people send stuff in. And what happens is um, some, you can't show anyone else that's been verified anywhere. It's just a, it's just a number simply sitting there. So it doesn't mean anything. It, what, it, what it means is every year it would go up. But that doesn't mean that that it's, you know, we're not we don't know which first responders we're talking about. We don't know any other details other than this occurred. And um, I think with that, I said, you know, we can't keep having these people that have ended their lives and they're leaving us this information about what we should do differently or things that we need to look at. And yet we're doing nothing with that information. So with the database that I built, the idea is that we're honoring all of those cases in our data. They are giving us something and we need to sit back and we need to look at what they're giving us and look at it in a different way. For example, you just mentioned the relationship issues, right? And that we don't go back and self-reflect on the part of my responsibility and why this relationship didn't work out and why I keep repeating this over and over. That's the paradigm shift here. This book, the data, it's all looking at things in a different view. So for example, we oftentimes will go to those relationships that we had as children, as our parents, right? Even if they're dysfunctional and they're unhealthy, they're comfortable and we know them. So we run back to those relationships oftentimes as adults. So when we look at that, we're going, why do we run to these relationships? What does a healthy relationship look like, right? We start early. We start in the academy. We, you know, if they're not getting that at home, then we have to start somewhere. We need to start in the academy by bringing in these things and these protective factors and looking for how we can do this differently. If we have cops out there that are getting married and divorced three or four plus times, um, something's not right here. And we need to step back and take a look at it because all of those factors or comorbidities, right? They're all affecting each other in a different way. 
So there's more than one thing that we're usually dealing with on that list, uh, but that's the one that leads the way. Hmm. Is there is there an issue? Um, I think I heard it somewhere. I'm not sure if, if that is the case everywhere. If um, if a police officer commits suicide and it is recorded officially as a suicide, would that affect the, the pension that the family perhaps get? Yeah, it can. I mean, a lot of times the, there's everything's cut off. Um, we've had cases where the family literally didn't get, you know, they got the last paycheck and then insurance benefits were gone. Um, it affects life insurance oftentimes as well. And we have families that are sitting out here with, with no means. And if that was your sole provider and breadwinner, now we have a huge financial issue, right? So that's one part of it. And then let's say we have, um, you know, let's say we have an officer who is pending an investigation or under investigation for some kind of illegal or criminal activity, Then it's even further distance from the family and the agency to address any issues or to, you know, to help them cope and get through this difficult time. So it gets really, the, the waters get very muddy very quickly. I, th I think that would be problematic, wouldn't it, for the um, openness of families wanting to report then, wanting to admit if, if it means that their livelihood would be compromised, perhaps. Right. Absolutely. Um, just looking at the comments. So we've got uh, Paul Melling. Hi, Paul. Watching from Devon. He's a response officer. Uh, I guess in America, that would just be um, a uniform patrol officer. Uh, and Devin, he's actually lost um, a veterinarian friend to suicide very recently in October. And we've also got um, Joy, who's a suicide, who works in a, she runs a suicide crisis center in the UK. Um, so thanks guys for, for watching and for being here. Um, Uh, Olivia, could you please tell us about the Blue Wall Institute? What is it? What does it do? And what are you hoping to achieve with it? Sure. So the Blue Wall Institute is just an organization that I founded back in 2010. Um, we have three main goals. So we do consulting work with agencies and officers and families. We do training and then we do a needs assessment. So the idea is we consult with agencies about upcoming events, trends, things that we're seeing, even through the data or, you know, just just in general in the media. And we talk to them about the implications on their agencies and their officers' well-being. So we look at health, wellness, and safety as the three main components that we address. So, for example, you may have an issue with, say, like an officer that's speeding or, you know, having risk-taking behavior that's out of place. And that may be a bigger issue. That may not just be an issue of someone speeding or, you know, not following policy or, you know, protocol. That may be an officer that's really in need of some wellness training and that may be struggling in other ways. So we're able to go in there and do a needs assessment for agencies and find out what are you seeing? What kind of trends are you seeing? What kind of issues are you facing? We talk discipline. We can look at a bunch and a wide array of things at an agency to try to find out what might be going on. And what we do is we set up a game plan for them and we come in and we were able to break down what kind of training and education programs are needed. We consult them through the entire process. And then we come back in and do an evaluation once that stuff's complete to see where we're at and, and see if these things have started to change. So oh, that, yeah, that and sounds it, amazing. It, it really is. It, it ties in the health wellness because everything really does come together. Fantastic. Now we mentioned the 10 fatal factors. I'm going to see if I can copy them all into the chat and I hope that they will turn up in all the comments and um, on all platforms. So do you want to talk us through them? So we've got one interpersonal relationship issues. Right. Or did no. you want to read them? They're yours. Go ahead. That, that really led everything and that didn't surprise me at all. But what, um, like I said before, the paradigm shift here in the data 
is looking at it differently and addressing it differently. So our cohort with the blue wall is Dr. Jory Crossan, and he's amazing. And he talks about, you know, we're getting away from this prevention and intervention when we talk about suicide and we're turning towards a vaccination slash inoculation of prevention before these things happen. Right. Um, we jump then from the relationship issues into substance abuse, which again, wasn't a, it didn't surprise me in any way. We have issues, right? We have issues. And this wasn't just alcohol. I'm talking the data showed there were there were drugs and alcohol um, in the system at the time of death, sometimes two to three times the legal limit. Um, that didn't surprise me, but we have to look at this differently. I also track non-fatal attempts um, as well as suicide deaths. And then I also track overdose deaths by drugs. And, and those are things that we need to address as a culture that there's something going on here. And we need to dig deeper for the answers and not just throw out, oh, it might have been a bad hire or something else was going on. We need to look for those real answers out of the data. Then thirdly, we looked at the issue of cumulative stress and trauma, which is, I mean, it's a gimme when you talk about a first responder um, occupation. The difference is, you know, we need to start looking at stress and cumulative trauma over time with officers and with other first responders, as far as like how many calls are they going on on a daily basis? What kind of calls are they seeing? You know, are they getting assistance? Are there resources made readily available and in a timely manner so that when these things are happening, they're not being um, shoved, if you will, under the rug until something bad comes out later on. So it's really being proactive in addressing these, these issues that have uh, come out from the data and seeing where your risk factors may lie. The fourth one was sleep issues and sleep disorders. And, and I will tell you, um, working shift work, first responders in general, they don't sleep. Part of that can be because they have a lot on their mind. They may have physical pain. They're using and abusing alcohol and other drugs, which doesn't let them get into that REM sleep, that rapid eye movement, deep restful part of the sleep that they need to rejuvenate. There are many other issues going on that are causing us to either not get enough sleep, right? We're missing hours of sleep. And then we're having issues on, on duty, like, you know, either falling asleep or even having accidents. So that is a huge concern. And it's one of those things that I've noted quite often, actually, in many of the suicide cases where family members mentioned that they weren't sleeping very well or had been up for several days prior to the event. One of the things that did um, come out of the data that was very, you know, I would say concerning, and it wasn't just mental health issues, but it was one mental health issue in particular. And I'm not a clinician, but I reached out to many clinicians after I saw this. And the one thing that I noted in many of the cases, and that's between 17 and 30 percent of our cases from 2017 to 2019, had numerous mental health issues going on, but the main one was depression. So there was either a clinical diagnosis of the depression or the family noted and the, the coworkers noted a depressed mood or despondency in the days, weeks, and months leading up to the suicide death. And then we would go back and look at there were medicines that were prescribed. Some were being taken. Some were not being taken. And some were being taken, again, with other drugs and or alcohol, which defeats the entire purpose of that. So that was one of the things that came out of the data that was extremely concerning to me. And then I had to ask the question. So are we bringing in officers that are depressed? Are they becoming depressed through a career of cumulative stress and trauma and what they're experiencing and it's just being exacerbated? What are we missing here? So that's one of the components that we're taking now to the medical field. And we're saying, listen, um, I believe that we're missing this. We're missing this when people come in for physicals. We're missing it when they come in not feeling well. 
we're not, um, you know, as first responders, number one, we're actors. So we're not going to come in and say, listen, I'm depressed. I'm possibly thinking about hurting myself um, or even taking my life. We don't say that. We display other things, hoping that this medical professional will read into what we're telling them and figure it out. So we have the ability to deceive how we're feeling and what we need. And what we need to do is break down that barrier and allow this, this physician to have a list of things to ask or to look for in particular that might key them off that someone might be depressed. And then with that being said, do they need medication? Do they need follow-up with a mental health clinician? What, what things need to happen and what can happen and allow them to work safely um, if they are put on medications and answer those questions that many people are afraid to ask and if you're afraid to ask, you just won't ask and you'll keep struggling silently, right? So that's what happens. Um, we jump from the mental health concerns into medical issues. And I saw this on numerous cases where we had serious heart issues and other issues going on that many of these officers probably weren't even aware that were, that were you know, they were struggling with um, in any way. Um, and they were noted in the data. I mean, you know, issues with diabetes, heart issues, hypertension, um, you know, just pain in general, having a lot of pain issues, taking medicine. And then the seventh one was access to firearms. Um, hands down for our law enforcement officers, that is a, a daily tool that we have to have. And yet it is leading the way when we talk about um, dying by firearms. Um, general population as well, 51% of suicide deaths are by firearms. Um, they're the lethality of them, the accessibility of them, the inability to make another decision once they're used is very limited. So we've got to have some kind of plan in place where we address the family. We address a safety plan in the home, you know, locking firearms up because, you know, when, as soon as you start talking about firearms, people want to get into the second amendment argument. And the truth is it's not an argument about firearms. It's more of an argument about being safe with your family Right. If we have a gun that is in the wrong hands, even a child by accident, that increases the bad outcome on the other side of a parent who may have left that firearm out. Right. So we're trying to limit bad outcomes. You mix a little alcohol in there and maybe a fight or an argument and things can go downhill extremely fast. And that's what we're trying to limit. Then we jump into being under investigation. Not uncommon to see. Um, didn't didn't really. Um, I can't say it really surprised me, but again, when we know that someone's under investigation, what normally happens in an agency is no one talked to that individual, right? We don't want to, we don't want to compromise the investigation. Well, you can still reach out to these people and check on their wellness. And that's what needs to be happening. They should be assigned someone in, whether it be an administrator, an officer, a peer support individual, someone needs to be assigned to this individual who's under investigation to be checking on them and their health and wellness. Because regardless of the outcome, even if this officer is ultimately terminated, charged, whatever the case may be, they're still going back into society where we want them to be productive and we don't want to have to deal with them and we don't want to have a bad outcome. So it's our responsibility to make sure that happens. Right. Then we jump into the next one, which this was actually one that I had not seen before, though we have a number of retired officers in our case files because we track active, sworn, retired and former. One of the new trends that I saw were people who were pending or nearing retirement. Right. And they were taking their lives. Something is going on here. That tells me, number one, that if you're pending or nearing retirement, then we need to back this train up a little bit. And we need to go at least five years pre, you know, pre-retirement. And we need to start addressing some major things that are happening, major implications that are coming forward 
for these officers who are getting ready to retire? Is it increased stress? Is it a financial burden? Is it the lack of identity? What is it that's going on that we can help prepare them for before we get to that ultimate you know, retirement date? And, and that, that one should be at the top of the list right now. And then our 10th um, factor was it included any other major life events that could be the loss of a, a family pet, maybe a foreclosure, something major in the life that was happening that wasn't included in any of the other um, factor areas, if you will. So those were the fatal 10, we call those. Okay. I think, um, I think these are known to be common issues, but like you say, to actually have these extracted from, from your research and from your research specifically into law enforcement, I think that makes it very, very interesting just to add you know, the three dimensionality to this, if I can add my personal experience to some of them. So the first one is um, stress and issues called through interpersonal relationships. And um, I think we, you and I talked about this as well. You know, my experience was that last, last summer I, um, you know, separate from my husband and it was my decision, but it was still the most, what followed was still the most stressful time of my life. So I, you know, I did, I did walk around with some low level anxiety um, hanging over me for various reasons. And it is, it is a very, very, very high stakes situation. So I can, I can identify with that. Um, and I was not, I was never a police officer, but, you know, at that time when I was going through this and experiencing these emotions, you know, this thunderstorm of emotions, I did not have to be in charge of, you know, the public and protect the public so that I can see how that can be a really big challenge. Um, the other thing that I could possibly comment on would so in terms of firearms access um so obviously in the uk most officers are not armed mm -hmm. but we also have high suicide rates in right. in law enforcement so they find other other ways and means of doing that right. under investigation so last year was my most the most stressful period of my life um about two years before then was until then the most stressful period of my life when i was under investigation by the police force that i worked for i did i hadn't done anything horrible it was about you know, this website that I run police science doctor and I wanted to just, you know, do some background filming of, um, of police officers and I wasn't allowed to use any police resources. So they started a whole investigation and, um, it was very much blown out of proportion, but it was extremely stressful and I felt absolutely horrible. And uh, so I can see how that can really affect someone's mental health. And you feel that everybody knows and you sort of, I was, I was walking around like a beaten dog there for those, you know, for those few months. And, and then I, I, I eventually left because I wasn't allowed to work on my website. And I thought, well, I want to work on my website. It's important to me and it's important to people who benefit from it. So I, I can't stay here, but I can see how that can really, really be again, something that influences every other aspect of your life. So if you are on an investigation and it is stressful, you know, your relationship with your colleagues, like you say, is damaged because, you know, they're sort of like, oh, you know, we don't have, we don't want anything to do with her or with him. Um, so the way you perform at work might be different. Then obviously how is your partner and how is your family going to respond to you being under stress all the time and maybe feeling sorry for yourself and just, just being anxious. So it affects everything, work, life, relationships, colleagues. So that can, that can really really be very um very substantive the the impact it has on on you um so yeah i just wanted to add that you know that dimension to it that if, with some of these i can identify I, I don't have firearms i'd never want to have any firearms so i you know i can't say anything about that and if you have a medical issue i was wondering when you were saying that that you know like you said with the with the depression 
are these physical issues, you know, the, the medical issues, are they perhaps caused by the stress that officers experience? Or again, were they maybe not not noticed when, you know, during med- medical screening when they joined the force? Do you know anything about that? Well, there there's substantial research out there about some of these medical issues being exacerbated by the stress and the lifestyle and, you know, not eating right, not sleeping right, being exposed to certain toxins, especially in the fireside, exposed to the carcinogens and the, and the cancer rates. So there's a lot to be said about that. Um, even just the wear and tear as we age, you know, um, I just don't think there's enough education about taking care of yourself as a young person, because eventually, you know, I, I had a young man recently in a training say, you know, if I had known I was going to live this long, I would have took better care of myself. And he laughed, but he was serious. He said, I wake up every day. My body aches everywhere. You know, I, I used to think it was just the job. And now I think it's part of it's just getting older. And then, you know, you're wearing this belt with this extra weight around you all the time. You're getting in and out of vehicles. Your knees start to hurt. Your hips start to hurt. You have all these issues. I just believe that if we were to, you know, start this in the academy, we were talking about your physical wellness and how over time this is going to change. We would be more apt to sit back and take note of what we're doing to our body now and not just living in the moment, but knowing that we need to have this this body around for a long time and how we can better take care of it. And I think um, what we do is we wait till a medical issue or something, you know, dramatic happens, right? Like um, someone vomiting blood because they've been abusing alcohol for years and eventually the body has taken its toll and it can't take anymore. And then we want to talk about the physical issue, but we don't talk about why you started drinking in the first place and why you continue to drink at this level. We never address that. We try to fix the physical and then move on. That, that's the thing. I think many people don't realize that things like alcohol abuse um, and depression are not actually the thing that needs to be treated. Right. They're symptoms of something that's right. wrong. And we need to, there are things that happened as a result of the actual problem. And we need to look at the actual problem, don't we? P- people exactly. don't often see that. No. And, and it's the same case when you talk about children or young people that are sexually abused, right? We start looking at their promiscuity and, and drug and alcohol use. And it's like, that's not the issue. These are after effects that happen for them trying to deal with that. So it's the same concept. And we've got to step back for a moment and really look at, you know, wh- why are people coming into this career field? Why are we using alcohol so readily? And why is it, you know, and it's okay, even in excess to use it. Why is this okay? And what can we do differently to have a different outcome? So, you know, looking at that list of um, of 10, why, what do you think needs to happen for things to improve? Um, the first one, um, I, well, there's, there's three that really stick out to me. Number one, the relationship issues, right? Um, the second one being the substance abuse. And I would say the third one would be the mental health concern. So I think that with these issues, I think that number one, we need to have, um, we need to have an open conversation with agencies, with organizations that have pull that, you know, that can really sit down and look at this big picture. We need to go back in and we need to talk about relationship issues. So that's leading, that's leading our list right now. And this hasn't changed. This is nothing new to me. This is leading the list everywhere. We need to go back in and we need to talk about relationships, what a healthy relationship looks like, how to get back on track. If your relationship isn't healthy and well, how to make those changes for yourself personally right? How to incorporate things like active listening, good observation skills, you know, that emotional intelligence and mindfulness component to make us better in our relationships. And it couldn't hurt anything. I mean, that only helps us on and off duty, right? But if no one's ever told you how to make it work and there's no book out there to, you know, maybe how to fix things once they're broken, then you don't really know where to turn. You don't know what stuff to look at or what stuff to read. So why would we not want to educate people on 
who you are, who you are in a relationship, what you, you know, what baggage you bring, what kind of things you're bringing that maybe you could work on and start there. Right. And I believe that if we start addressing that issue, we're also going to address the issue of why we turn to things like alcohol, drugs, sex, shopping, when we, you know, things that are, could be bad for us in certain ways. And we look at why we're using those substances to deal with stress. Right. And then I think a part of that one would be when you're at a conference, everything, or you're at a, you know, a training, a lot of times everything's centered around the alcohol component. That's how we talk. That's how we go out and, you know, we were able to communicate and have fun and let our guard down. But I think too often that becomes the center of everything. And we're, we're not looking at the consequences of that behavior long-term. Right. And then thirdly would be the mental health concerns being that number one, the depression one and really addressing the mental health component pre-employment throughout a career. And then as we move into the retirement phase and what kind of things we're looking for, um, there were several cases in my data where these individuals um, were not in law enforcement for more than six months, maybe a year. And I have to look at that point then and say, well, this can't just be a law enforcement or an occupational issue. There's something else going on here. And when you're in your early 20s, we may be looking at other mental health issues that are just now coming out. So, again, more research needs to be done in a lot of this area. But it's something that we can definitely look at now that we have the data. See, I was looking, I was looking at this list. Well, I'm, I'm looking at this list. And I thought, actually, you know, the first two, not the first three. And then actually, I think the first five, and actually all of them, <laughs> without wanting to oversimplify it, if we had better resilience and if we, if we could deal with our thoughts and our emotions better, I don't think we would have, I, th I don't think any of these factors would be there. So if we could really, like, like you say, if we could have the emotional intelligence to deal with our own emotions and communication and, you know, reflective, reflectivity so we can really see and understand what we're doing and we can see and understand what other people are doing our relationships would be better so we wouldn't be resorting to substance abuse and addiction so much because we we are happier in ourselves and we can deal with things you know resilience is a big big topic then we wouldn't have the cumulative stress and trauma number three we would probably sleep better because we realize when we don't sleep well we realize how to get back on track with sleeping and the mental health concerns and the medical issues um, wouldn't be so, of, as, as much of an issue because they come from the problems of us not being able to deal with emotions and, and right. not have the resilience. Firearms access, well, if you're healthy, then it doesn't matter if you've got firearms access because you use it for work and not to kill yourself. And we could also deal with things like being under investigation or going going into retirement. So really, it's it's the, it's the mental and emotional stability that we need to build up, isn't it? Because everything else just comes out of that. It is. And, you know, one of the things I find, too, so I did a huge study through our coroner's office here in the county um, a few years ago, and I collected 11 years worth of data on every suicide that, that I had. And one of the main things that came out of this data was like this thread that came through the files, and it was the inability to problem solve. Right. So when I step back from that and I looked at this with the with the you know lens of law enforcement and corrections, we came to the same conclusion is that when we're under extreme stress, we may have one problem that starts the issue, but because it's so connected to these other 10 things and other life events, that it becomes a snowball that's rapidly gaining ground. And the inability to see the gray matter, right, the discretion that we have as, as law enforcement, the ability to make decisions um, is narrowed and we become we become dichotomous in our thinking. So everything's white and black, right and wrong. And we don't see the ability for us to use discretion in between here. So the idea of 
Okay. So your relationship's coming to an end and it could be because of your fault or both fault, you know, infidelity, whatever financial issues, trust issues, whatever it is, that should not be an, a do all end all. That should not be a game changer. When you say that I'm, this is it. I, you know, if you're not putting in the time and energy into the relationship to begin with, and you're not working on yourself as part of that relationship, then we have to step back and do the work. And what happens is we want an answer for anything we're dealing with. We want one answer. And the truth is, is that life is difficult. Careers are hard, but we have to put in the hard work. And I truly believe that if we put the hard work in at the front of this, right, we're going to limit liability issues, right, personally and occupationally. We're going to have, you know, reduced numbers of excessive use of force. We're going to have, you know, fewer complaints on and off duty, right? We're going to improve our quality of life, like you said, and things are going to come out differently. What happens is we get stuck in this cesspool of all this stuff happening. No one is, you know, literally doing anything to keep us out of it. They keep dragging us through it instead of telling us, hey, you don't have to get in that swamp today. You could actually go around, right? Because part of being resilient is sometimes you can see that stuff happening before it happens and you can avoid it. And we don't do that. Everybody wants to go through the swamp on their own, in their own way, on their own terms, and yet nothing changes. And that's what we need to do different is realize you don't have to have every answer. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't always have to have the right answer, but you need to do something different. So in, in terms of, um, you know, your suggestions, then would you say that would this, would this be mandatory regular training or would this be training at the beginning of an officer's career or would they, would it be at specific points throughout their career? All of the above. So if I had this list now, if I was a police chief or a sheriff somewhere and I and someone brought this list to me and said, these are the 10 things that are leading to our suicide deaths and other bad outcomes because divorce, DUI, being under arrest, all those things are just bad outcomes, right? Um, suicide is getting the attention, but if we can stop these bad outcomes from happening to begin with, the risk for suicide goes down dramatically. So I would say if you handed me this list of 10, I would be on, I, I would be raising my hand saying, how can I get this training? How can I get someone in here to talk about these issues in a different way to where we can start minimizing our risk, right? Doing a risk management idea here. How can we reduce our risk on an individual and agency level? And how can we start seeing changes where we're not having all these bad outcomes? And that's one of the things we do. We offer a class called the fatal 10. We have another program that's called shepherds and sheepdogs, which will be coming out in the next month. And it takes a little bit more of a spiritual component, but it talks about the relationships in depth and how those really affect every other thing on the list. So, you you know, we need to be putting together training programs and getting people like myself and the other people from this book and, and really coming into those agencies and educating, you know, agency administrators, educating your insurance companies, right? Educating um, the people in the academy when they first come in and then continuous quarterly or yearly training for the rest of the people that are still working and then making it a point to focus then on who's coming in to that five-year plan for retirement and then having a whole other component there for them when they retire because now the risk factor is still up when they're working, right? It's going to continue as they retire. And listen, white males, when they reach teenage years, they never age out of suicide. So it's like one of those things that we need to be more cognizant of and we need to have a better grip on how to handle this issue and what we can do to relieve um, these individuals from these bad outcomes and reduce stress all around. Um, tell us tell us about your book. I'm just going to show it here and sure. I'm going to put the link in here as well. 
So um, our, our book, I, I can't tell you enough of the people that worked on this book. Um, it's just truly amazing. And I'm not saying that because it's, it's, I'm part of it. It's a game changer. Um, this book takes an in-depth look at police suicide and law enforcement corrections suicide from active sworn, retired, and former officers from the years 2017 to 2019. And what is included in the data is how, you know, how it was collected and the 10 fatal factors that came out of the data and literally how each of these um, separate co-authors talked about these because that's their specific area that they work in. They address each of those issues in depth. We talk about pre-employment hiring. We talk about policy implications towards the end. We talk about things like thinking like a detective and looking for behavioral cues and using some case studies and interviews. It's a book like no other. Um, I think with this book, we are going to see that change in how we address not only suicide, but how we address things like someone that's, you know, going through a divorce or a pending breakup, someone that may have an alcohol or an addiction issue in some way. We address it in a way that we want to, number one, we want to address the entire person. We want to also look at the family component here and how important they are. We want to provide good, you know, resources in a timely manner. It really, it really has this broad view of the data, but then each chapter will literally go into depth about what we're looking at here, what the data says, what we can do differently moving forward. Okay, excellent. Congratulations on that book. That only came out a few weeks or months ago, didn't it? Yeah, back in November, a little early, but yes. November, okay. Um, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it to make a change in policing or law enforcement, what would you want that one change to be? Oh, there'd be a lot, but I think one of the biggest ones would be to have our agency administrators um, people in leadership positions to treat a mental health issue or something that someone is struggling with just as they would a physical issue, I think would be the biggest one. Um, I say it in my training all the time. Anyone that does this job, there is no one here that is unscathed. I don't care how long you've been here, how little time you've been here, you've been exposed to something. And anyone with half a brain would understand that being exposed um, to certain things over a certain amount of time, you're going to have a cumulative exposure. You're going to have problems whether it be relationship problems, whether it be substance abuse problems, you know, sleep issues, whatever it is from this list, you're going to have issues. So why do we act like it's not going to happen until it does? Right. Um, and what happens is we get the best of us who are actors who are able to hide that. We can hide that for, for a long time. Um, one of the quotes that I use in my training um, is that our law enforcement administrators are more concerned with deviance and dysfunction than with health and resiliency. And the truth is that that's very true. But we don't see deviance and dysfunction until it breaks through. When I'm not able to act anymore and I start doing things in front of you or I come to work under the influence or I start making I start making mistakes in front of you, you start realizing that something is wrong. By the time you recognize that in a first responder, you already have a problem because you missed the boat. Right. This has been going on for a very long time. So why would we not want to look at this in a risk management way? Why would we not want to take this list and change the paradigm and how we address these issues, right? Get ahead of the curve. I would expect that anyone coming into law enforcement at this point is going to have at least one or two uh, marriages that they're going to drink, right? In some capacity, they're going to have sleep issues. They're going to have pain issues. They're going to go through all these things. They already start out with four or five risk factors right, right there as we speak, right? And then you want to add in the middle-aged men and women, right? We've got the firearm component here. We're adding in all these additional risk factors that is tipping the scale every single day in your agency that's putting you at risk for bad outcomes. Why would we not want to get you know ahead of that, right? Your insurance company would want us to get ahead of that. And the families want you to get ahead of it because listen, 
these officers aren't going to be doing this forever. They're going to resign. They're going to retire. They're going to move on. They could be injured. And sadly, they could die in some capacity. They may not be here anymore. We've got to make sure that we're taking care of them while they're here and we get them back to those people that care about them in one piece, whether they're working for us or not. That's our job. Yes, it's interesting that you say that administrators are usually looking at things that will only come up when things when it's already too late, when things have already gone horribly wrong. Right. And it's actually an investment that you make. And people are and in including police chiefs and sheriffs are always very reluctant to invest any money and to spend any money. But a few months ago I into um Ginny McKenna, um, she's a, an ex police officer and a, a health a life coach who's, who specializes in resilience in law enforcement. And we interviewed together a police chief from Oregon called Corey Darling. And he had actually turned around the mental health in his police force and invested in things that make his police force better. And the insurance company cont contacted him and said, you know, what's going on here? We're having really much lower payouts. This is great. What are you doing? And I'm just wondering, well, if you, if you, you know, he spoke on, on this interview about this and well, why isn't everyone doing that? There's a solution here. It's, it's making his, his staff better. It's making them feel better. It impacts their lives, their families and the insurance company. Right. He, paying he, out this. <laughs> yeah. He's being a champion, but you know what, being a champion takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And I think the biggest hurdle with that is not just the fear component of people having to change or being addressed, being, you know, changed. It's the culture. We have a culture of wanting to do things the same way. And when things want to come in to disrupt that culture, it's very scary for many people. But to change a culture, you know, sometimes people don't like you when that happens. Um, you know, so we, we've got to understand that this isn't just an individual issue. This isn't an agency issue. Um, this is a cultural issue on, on, on many levels. And we've got to address it differently. And it takes those champions and those people stepping up, wanting to do things differently and realizing, like I tell people in training, you don't go to work to be friends with your coworkers. You go there for a common goal, right? And, and you go there for a common goal and you go home at the end of the night to the people in your house. We're not there to be friends. So sometimes we need to have difficult conversations with people about bad behavior, risk-taking behavior, things that just aren't okay. And then we fix those things and we move on. And, and we've got to change the way we think about this, right? And, and we've got to think that this is a bigger, broader issue when we talk about, especially when we talk about things like suicide contagion or clustering within agencies. There are things going on here and we need to be real serious and we need to have some really open conversations about what that stuff is. Hmm. And, um, you know, my last question, if you want, if people only took away one one aspect or one piece of information that you told us about here in this interview, what would you want that one piece of information to be? I would want them to look at the fatal 10 and look at it with a different lens, right? We, we want to change the way we look at our problems so that we can find better solutions and more viable solutions. You're not going to have a one size fits all, but if I had anything to offer out of this, I'm telling you that the data speaks for itself. If we have the answers, why would we not try to plug those in somewhere and try to start reducing the number of suicide deaths that we have, saving the families from the heartache and the agencies that are dealing with this, you know, for a lifetime? We need to do something different. We have the answers. Let's start using them for solutions. Dr. Olivia Johnson, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps, and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address, and the type of organization you work for. You will not get any spam, 
This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get access to all the transcripts.